We have been working through uh, Matthew's Gospel. We're in Matthew chapter 16. We spent about four weeks studying that phrase, signs of the times, where Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, They could interpret the weather, but they couldn't interpret the signs of the times. Well, we're going to move on now um, to this section, Matthew 16, and it says this. When the disciples reached the other side, now Jesus had been teaching on one side of the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, and uh, he had a debate with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? And then uh, he says, all right, let's leave. So they get in a boat, they go to the other side. It says, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, um, we're going to find out that when Jesus is talking about leaven, he's not talking about actual bread. He's talking about something else. But uh, as happens in the Gospels many times, the disciples don't get it. They take him in a very woodenly literal fashion. So they think he's talking about bread. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. So, so they're saying, oh, he's telling us, he's rebuking us because we forgot to bring lunch. And we forgot to bring bread. Oh, no, what are we going to do? How are we going to eat? But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive, do you not remember the... Now, now he's going to talk about two events that have taken place. Do you not remember the five loaves? Remember, there were 5,000 people, and Jesus fed them all with five loaves and two fish. Do you not remember the five loaves and the 5,000... And how many baskets you gathered. Now, interesting. I've, I've really puzzled over this, uh, this scripture in the past. And when I really delved into it this week, the light bulb went on. He is, uh, he is saying, I had five loaves, I fed 5,000, and then we gathered all the leftover. And do you remember how many baskets of leftovers were gathered? Anybody remember? There were 12. Enough for the 12 apostles. Right? Then he says, or the seven loaves for the 4,000. There's another account in Matthew 15 where he feeds uh, 4,000 people, starts with seven loaves and how many baskets you gathered. You know know how many baskets they gathered that time? Seven. So if you do all the math, you go, what is this with all the numbers? Well, we'll get to that. How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Now, um, basically, what's all this saying? Well, I provided for 5,000 plus you guys. What are you worried about bread for? I took care of you. Remember the numbers. We'll talk about that in just a second. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about leaven. What's that? Then they understood that he, he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, we're going to talk about the teaching, but first of all, a little mini lesson. You get a bonus lesson here this morning when you do all this math here. Go back to the first feeding of the 5,000. Jesus starts with five loaves, two fish, and he feeds 5,000 people. And then it says this in Matthew 14, 20, and they 
all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over, just enough to feed the disciples, right, or the apostles. Now, in in chapter 15, he does the same miracle, uh, but for 4,000 people, and it says this, and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Uh, Virtually, he uh, he cuts and pastes 1420 into 1537, except for one word, 12 here and 7 here. And you go, well, I was following if uh, he fed the 12 with 12 baskets, but seems like he's a little short here with seven baskets. What's going on here? Well, here's where, if if you know a little bit of Greek, you can be dangerous. Um, The word for baskets here, kofonos, is a small basket, a lunch-sized basket. If you look at this word basket, it's the only word different, spurus. It's a larger basket. How many baskets would you need to feed 12 guys? About seven. Point. Jesus not only provided for the, the 5,000 and the 4,000, he provided precisely to the mouthful for that many, and the leftovers exactly fed to the mouthful the disciples. Okay? Now, that's tough to pull off. Just Monday night, we had a little potluck, a little pizza potluck, and we ordered pizzas. Everybody ate, had their full. We had five leftover pizzas. Couldn't, we couldn't do 30 people or whatever, how many people showed up. Jesus, with 5,000 and 4,000, feeds everybody to the mouthful, and the leftovers to the mouthful feed the disciples. Now, what's the point? Those of you who are anxious about the future, will God provide for me? Can he take care of me? How do he do? It's, yeah, it's a miracle, not just of provision, but of precision. Right? Will he provide for your needs? Absolutely. Now, did they have leftovers after the leftovers? No. He provides exactly what you need. Not more, not less. Relax. Okay, so that's bonus. That's your bonus. But if we stop right there, that'd be worth coming, wouldn't it? Plus, you got baptized. So then, um, that's the that's that's a bonus point. But the main point is, he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees and the Sadducees were religious teachers. They taught error. Now, why does he call it leaven? Well. Um, interesting verse here in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Paul says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Little bit of leaven, put it in a big batch of dough, and it affects the whole thing. He's not just saying be, be careful with big doctrinal teaching. He's saying Even the little insignificant stuff, if you get it wrong, it affects whole churches. It affects whole families. It affects eternal salvation. So get your doctrine correct. All right? Um, I'm reminded of a a story. I'm debating how much to tell you here. But um, when Elizabeth and I were first married, we went to Clintonville, Wisconsin. 
town of 3,000 with the cows. And um, we didn't have kids, but there was a family in the church who we became friends with, and uh, they were going away for the weekend, and they said, hey, why don't you stay in our house? You can let the dog out, help yourself to what's ever in the refrigerator, just make yourself at home. And they said, hey, we have a, a, like a big whirlpool uh, bathtub. Feel free to use that. So I'm like, all right. So uh, we were there for the weekend and um, starting to fill up the bathtub. And I didn't know, but Elizabeth had already poured a cap full of the bubble bath in there. So um, I poured, it was probably more than a cap full, but it didn't look like it was doing anything. So, you know, poured some in there. And then you turn the jets on, and then we went and waited for the thing to fill up. And we came back, and the door, it was one of those sliding doors, and we came back, and there were bubbles coming out from under the door. We opened the door. It had to be this high, the whole bathroom. It's like an I Love Lucy show, you know, full of bubbles. We're like, what do we do? So we went in the kitchen and got cookie sheets, and we're throwing it in the shower and spraying down the bubbles, and this went on for I don't know how long, but... um, a little bubble bath affects the whole bathroom. Right? Right? So that, that's what Jesus is saying here. Be careful, be on guard when it comes to religious teaching. Even just a little bit of wrong teaching can have huge consequences. Now, this would be the place to jump off and talk about various errors in the church. Incorrect doctrinal teaching that can create all kinds of havoc. Uh, and where do you start? I mean, we could spend the rest of uh, you know, eternity talking about all the errors. But um, what I want to talk about today is an error that pops up in every generation. It has popped up recently again. And that is not understanding the doctrine of the Trinity. Because it affects our understanding of who God himself is is, right? Some of you are familiar with this whole elephant room controversy. I'll explain a little bit more what what exactly that is. But every generation needs to redefend every doctrine, or else if we let it go, it affects the next doctrine and the next doctrine, or the next generation and the next generation. So um, today we need to uh, to make sure we understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, what's the Trinity? Well, let me give you just a real concise theological definition. The Trinity, uh, let me define it this way. God is eternally one in essence and three in person or persons. What does that mean? For eternity, God has always been one in essence But that one God has existed as three distinct persons for all eternity. Um, It's really impossible to fully comprehend. Uh, People have tried to, to use different analogies. Probably the closest is this triangle example where you've got God. That's the essence of God in the middle. And on the corners, you've got God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Son. They are distinct persons, but God is the Holy Spirit, 
God is the Son, God is the Father. You go, I don't understand how that works, neither do I. All right? But when you study the scripture, that's what we must conclude. There is only one God, he is one in essence, three in person. Okay? Now, um, here's what happens when you go, I can't figure that out. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it understandable in my own little mind. In fact, let me come back to this. But uh, a theologian named Watson back in uh, 1833 said this, No figures of speech, no unnatural modes of interpretation are resorted to when it comes to Scripture explaining this. To reconcile these views with human conceptions, which they must uh, infinitely transcend. In other words, you can't really fully comprehend it. This is the character of the heresies which have arisen on the subject. The character of the heresies is people say, I want to make it understandable. They all spring from the attempt to make this mystery of God conceivable by the human mind and less a stone of stumbling to the pride of reason. So when you say, I don't understand it, um, I don't understand how God can be one in essence and three in person, so I'm going to change some things. Now, let me point out two heresies that were in the early church and exist today when it comes to trying to understand this. One is called Arianism, because it's named after a guy named Arius. Um, Basically, he said this, God is one in essence and one in person. He said, I don't get this one in essence, three in person. If there's one essence, there's only one person. Now, if you say God is only one person then what do you do with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? You have to say two of them are not God. Therefore, Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't be God. So Arius said, yes, Jesus died on the cross. He's a powerful spiritual being, but he's not God, and neither is the Holy Spirit. Only God the Father is. So Arianism retains the the oneness of God, but it denies the threeness of God. Therefore, they do not believe Jesus or the Holy Spirit are God. All right? Then there is uh, what you call modalism. All right? Modalists say this, God is one in essence and one in person. Same, same foundational fallacy. There's only, God is only one in essence and one in person. Therefore, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have to be different manifestations of the one person of God. In other words, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, God the Father is God, but they don't all exist at the same time. God morphs from being God the Father into God the Spirit, and kind of like the Incredible Hulk morphs into you know, whoever it was. I remember it was being Bill Bixby back in my day. But, um, or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But there's only one person. He just turns into these different manifestations. That's modalism. Now, um, the question is, each of these views, even the orthodox view of the Trinity, is incomprehensible. So why don't we just throw up our hands and say, it doesn't matter, just grasp onto any one, because they're all equally hard to understand. Well, let let me tell you why you can't just do that. Why you can't just grab modalism or Arianism and say, ah, whatever. Well, two reasons. One, we need to get the Trinity right so we don't commit idolatry. Second commandment forbids idolatry, not to make idols. Now, you can make idols in two ways. One, 
with metal. You can make a metal idol and bow down to it, but the second way is mental. You can have a wrong picture of who God is. We can do that with his person. We can do that with his attributes. You know, the person who says, my God would never send anybody to hell. Basically, you're saying, I refuse to embrace all the attributes of God. And my God, I will worship the God of my own fashioning. Right? So um, what you need to understand is progressive revelation. God has not revealed all of who he is in the first verse of the Bible or the first chapter of the Bible or the first book of the Bible. We have two testaments, the old and the new. They don't contradict one another, but we learn more and more and more about God and his plan and who he is and what he does as Revelation goes on. And we need to, so we don't commit idolatry, understand the whole of Revelation and the whole of who he has revealed himself to be. So one reason you got to get this right is so we don't commit idolatry. Second reason we need to get it right is so we can understand the cross. You can't get the cross right unless you have a, an Orthodox Trinity. And we'll talk about that, especially with, with modalism in just a minute. So let's go a little bit further into, into detail with these two heresies. The first one is Arianism. Now, Arius was this early church heretic. He taught there's only one God and one person in that God. And if there's only one person, that's the Father. It can't be Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is a powerful spiritual being, but he is not God. Now, his opponent was a fellow by the name of Athanasius. Athanasius... uh, wrote and uh, argued for the deity of Christ. And they even, this is around the time of the Council of Nicaea, there were debates, and it boiled down to this. When Arius used a word to describe the essence of Christ, he wanted to use the word homoousius. It means of the same substance. Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. Now, uh, so, so Athanasius used homoousius. Arius said, no, let's use the word homoousius. There's one little I in the middle there, and it doesn't mean of the same substance. It means of a similar substance. Jesus is not God, but he's like God. Now, the reason I point that out is the difference between these two views boils down to this little Greek letter called iota. And sometimes people say, oh, you pastors and theologians. You're all into your theology. Theology doesn't matter one iota. Here it matters. Whether you worship Jesus as God or not boils down to one little iota. So we better get it right. Okay. Now, um, who are the modern day Arians? Who holds to this wrong view? Do you know? Jehovah's Witnesses. Right? So when they come knocking on your door and uh, they start, they'll bamboozle you. They, they will get you thinking that you all agree on the same thing. And then they'll slowly get you involved in their Bible studies and, and uh, pretty soon they'll, they'll indoctrinate you and you will not believe that Jesus is God. Now, uh, this year we've had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses stop by. For some reason they don't keep coming back though. Um, one day, I actually, I was ready for them because I had my Greek 
uh, Bible program. Not that I'm a master in Greek by any means, but I have a Bible program with an interlinear, which has the Greek and the English. And uh, we have a, a computer up in the in the upstairs. And I said, "Come on, come over here." And we started looking at the Greek, and they, they were like, "Oh, well, we're out of here." Um, but they do not believe that Jesus is God. Now, when we were talking, I said, "Here's why this is important. If I'm wrong." then I'm committing and my church is committing idolatry because we worship Jesus as God and that is idolatry. If he's not God, he shouldn't be worshipped. We just committed idolatry this morning if Jesus is not God. On the other hand, uh, if they're wrong, they're guilty of idolatry because they're refusing to worship God as he has revealed himself, as a triune God. So this kind of matters. Right? Now, um, let's take a look at the verses. What does the scripture say? Does the scripture teach that Jesus is God? Well, in the Old Testament, it's very clearly spelled out. The oneness of God uh, is very clearly spelled out. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one God. But we also get hints that there's more persons in that one Godhead. Even in the first chapter of Genesis. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us, plural, make man in our, plural, image after our likeness and let them have dominion. Even in Genesis 1, God speaking to himself uses the plural. Now some people say, oh, he was using the plural of majesty. Or uh, he's talking to the angels. No. (laughs) He's talking to the members of the Trinity in Genesis 1. But it becomes crystal clear in the New Testament. Who was Jesus' best friend? John. John writes the Gospel of John. And the first verse begins, In the beginning was the Word. That's that's another name for Jesus, because in verse 14 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So in the beginning was Jesus, the Word. And the Word was with God. So here we have, whoever this Word is, before creation, in the beginning, the Word was with God. So there's distinction there. The Word and God the Father are distinct. But then the next phrase says, And the Word was God. There's unity. They're the same and they're different. We understand it by saying God is one in essence, three in person. Now, if the Jehovah's Witness do come to your, your door, they're going to read their version, John 1.1, 1, 1, and their last phrase is going to say, and the word was a God. Their translation has a little A in there, and they're going to say, well, in the Greek... And and by the way, you say, well, do they believe in many gods? Well, they believe there's only one true God. But, for example, Satan is referred to as the god of this age. There are powerful spiritual beings. So there's Satan and angels and demons. And Jesus is a powerful spiritual being. He's a god. Now, they're going to tell you that that's in the Greek. Little, Little hint for you. The Greek does not have the indefinite article. In English, we have a, the word a, a. Uh, the definite article is the, like this is the drum, but a drum is referring to an indefinite 
whatever drum, okay? So the, uh, in the Greek, there are no indefinite articles, so when they translate Greek into English, the translators have to make an editorial decision. Should we put an uh here? No reputable translation of the English Bible, of the Greek Bible into English, has an uh here. They have to insert that into their theology, or they take their theology and, and translate it that way. So here we have a clear statement that Jesus was God from the beginning. John's gospel begins with it. God, John's gospel ends with it, too. Remember, the end is Jesus rises from the dead. He appears to the apostles. Everybody's there except Thomas. Thomas says, I don't believe you until I can actually see him. So Jesus appears to Thomas, John 20. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. That's the, that's the climax of the gospel. He gets it. He believes Jesus is his Lord and his God. Now, does Jesus go on to rebuke him and say, no, 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 don't call me God? No, he goes on to say, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are you, you've seen me and you believe. Blessed are those throughout the ages who don't even need to see me and they believe. But he doesn't rebuke him for calling him God. Jesus receives the title God. Right? Uh, John's gospel really is the gospel about the deity of Christ. In John 8, Jesus is arguing with some of the Jews and um, he says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So here, Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. And he talks about Abraham rejoicing that he would see Jesus' day. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, if Jesus had said, before Abraham was, I was, that would be, that would be scandalous enough because he would be saying, 2,000 years ago, I already existed. But not only does he say that, but he uses the wrong verb tense. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What's the deal there? Well, remember when Moses asked God, what's your name? Who should I say sent me? God said, tell them, I am has sent you. This is the name Jehovah. Jesus is saying, before Abraham was, and then he says the name of God. Right? In, the, in the Hebrew, it's Jehovah. In the Greek, it's ego eimi, I am. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses will say, well, that's not what he meant. Well, the Jews in this context certainly thought that's what, what he meant, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Right? Another proof for the deity of Christ is Jesus receives worship in Matthew 28, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, when angels are worshipped, the angels correct people and say, don't worship me, I'm not God. For example, in, in the book of Revelation, after John has all these revelations, in the last chapter, 
John says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Don't worship me. Worship God. Jesus is worshipped. And rather than correcting the people, he receives the worship. Now you say, is there any place where it just comes right out and calls Jesus God? Yeah. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's actually a Greek rule called the Granville Sharp Rule that actually requires God and Savior to be modifying Jesus Christ. He's God and Savior. Okay. Now what about the Holy Spirit? Real quick. Um, Remember, Peter, Peter is uh, conducting a church service in the book of Acts. And Ananias and Sapphira, uh, Sapphira they sold some land and they were going to give all the, the money to the church. But they held some back. And it says this. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, uh, they would say the Holy Spirit's a force, not a person. Well, you can't lie to a force. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have uh, contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to who? To God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. All right. Three persons, one essence. Now, that's heresy number one, Arianism. Don't become a Jehovah's Witness. That's all that to say. Okay. You with me on that? Okay, good. All right. Um, The second error is modalism. It's also called uh, Sabalianism. Why is it called Sabalianism? Well, Sabalius lived around 200 A.D. It's gross. Um, He believed there was one God, and this one God only existed as one person, but he could morph into the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. All right? So you've got the Father of creation and the giving of the law and over Israel, and then Jesus, he, he becomes Jesus here on earth as a man, and then now he's the Holy Spirit, and I guess some of them believe he can morph back and forth at different times and, and so forth. Um, that's why sometimes when we give illustrations to explain to our kids the Trinity, you got to be careful uh, that you don't use a couple of bad illustrations. One is the, the classic ice, water, steam illustration. God is like water. He can be, can be an ice cube. He can be liquid, and he can be gas. Well, that's actually a good illustration for modalism. It morphs from one to the next to the other. Okay? Others would say, oh, well, just like a, a, a man can be a father, a husband, and a coach. Well, that's also a good illustration of modalism. Same person puts on different hats. The joke is Phillips, Craig, and Dean, they're modalists. 
So Phillips comes out. Hi, I'm Phillips. He runs off stage, comes out with another. I'm Craig. <laughs> comes off and puts on a, I'm Dean. Like it's only one person. Okay. Around noon, these are going to hit you. You're going to go, that was funny. Now, um, why, um, why does this matter today? Well, you may have heard of the elephant room controversy. Uh, what's the elephant room? Well, two years ago, some uh, evangelical pastors promoted a conference um, that was telecast, really, all over the world from that little studio behind your house there on Route 56, is it? Yeah. Um, so Al and Joyce are really responsible for this whole thing. <laughs> right? So... <laughs> So they called it the elephant room because it's a takeoff of the, the concept that there's an elephant in the room that nobody's talking about. And the idea was to get fellow believers, fellow pastors to come and talk about, uh, they, they agree on essentials, but they were going to talk about differences in methodology in how to do church. Some of the guys are pretty radical and some of them are a little more conservative, so let's get in this room and talk about our differences in methodology, and it was the first year uh, well attended, and people, uh, people watched it and talked about it. Now, this year, they advertised that they were going to do it again, but a lot of the Christian world was shocked to hear that the big guest was going to be T.D. Jakes. Now, T.D. Jakes is the African-American preacher. Uh, go to Walmart, and there in the book section is a book by T.D. Jakes. He's always writing books. Now, why is that controversial? Well, number one, he's a prosperity preacher, right? Accept Jesus, and he will heal you and make you healthy, wealthy, and so forth. But he's also a modalist, or at least he grew up as a United Pentecostal he had that as a church background. He's no longer in that denomination, but the United Pentecostal uh, denomination holds to modalism. Right? Now, Jakes is no longer a modalist, and uh, the question is, does he hold to modalism? Now, the guys in the elephant room said, well, we think he's renounced his modalism, and others said, well, you know, we don't think he has. Why are you inviting somebody in a room of brothers to talk about methodology when you don't even agree on who God is. And uh, some of them said, well, come on, you're making a bigger deal out of this. We all use different lingo. It's, it's not that big a deal. Well, after the conference, um, here's what Justin Taylor said about the conference. He said, it seems that Bishop Jakes now prefers the language of Trinitarianism, though he doesn't want to functionally abandon the language of modalism. In particular, the words manifestations, he, he likes the word manifestations over persons. So, they brought him in, they asked him about his view of the Trinity, he used Trinitarian language, but he also likes to use the word manifestations, which is clearly modalism. So um, some walked away saying, yay, he's a Trinitarian, he's on our side. Others walked away saying, no, he's not. He didn't renounce it at all. And what it ended up being is a bunch of confusion. And the concern is, have these guys now 
um, mainstreamed T.D. Jakes into evangelicalism, and now does the Trinity really matter? Okay. Now, I, I've read a lot of stuff on this, and I don't want to get into the personalities. Here's something, though, that I've noticed that uh, people who write about this, very few of them are able to articulate why this matters. Okay? About the best they can do, a lot of them can do, is say, well, it doesn't uphold the classic formula for the Trinity. True. Why does that matter? What does it matter whether we sing about God in three persons, blessed Trinity, or God in one person who morphs into three persons? Why does that matter? Well, remember, point one, God has revealed some truth about himself, and we, are, we, we fall close to idolaters when we say, no, I don't understand it, therefore I am not going to embrace that. Okay, so there's idolatry on the line. Um, but secondly, you can't understand the cross. Okay, now let me go back and talk about um, just where has God revealed that he is three persons at the same time. Okay? Now, um, as I started studying this, a certain verse came to mind. Um, it's Jesus praying in John 17. This is in the upper room before he is arrested that night. And here's his prayer. And now, Father, so, so he is speaking to God the Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Now, not only is he currently in the flesh, one person praying to another, and, and they would say when Jesus prayed, He's fully human and fully divine, and his humanity could be praying to his divinity. But they, they would. here's the question. Before Jesus was in the flesh, did he exist as a separate person in the presence of the Father? And here Jesus clearly says, uh, glorify me with the glory I had with you, I had with you, two different pronouns, before the world existed. Not only am I now speaking to you, one person to another, but for all eternity I existed with you, two separate persons. Now I thought, what would they possibly do with that? And uh, there's a, a oneness writer uh, that I, I read. His name is Gordon McGee. This is what he does. Oneness theologians understand that John 17, verse 5, refers to the idyllic, existence of the Son before the foundation of the world, or his existence in God's mind or thought. Obviously, the Son did not actually exist before Bethlehem. So, so Jesus is saying, God the Father, I want to go back and be with you in the glory we shared. Well, the, he didn't really exist. It was just God the Father imagining the idea of Jesus, the Son, but he didn't actually exist. It's just an outright denial of the verse. 
right? That is clearly, in my mind, an example of one's theology twisting the verse. Rather than saying, let's let the verse make up my theology, that's the theology making up the verse. Now, you go, what about all the examples where all three members of the Trinity are present? For example, at Jesus' baptism, Matthew 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. There you've got the Son, the Spirit, and the Father speaking all in one scene. What do they do with that? McGee says, The truth is that the man who was baptized by John was also the omnipresent God, and he was responsible for the voice. Yeah, he's a ventriloquist. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Now, what they argue, to be fair, is that Jesus, while fully man, is also fully God. And as fully God, he's still uh, omnipresent. So he is in heaven. Uh, but boy, you've got to do a lot of jumping around to say, oh, only one person, even though this one person seems to go out of his way to show himself as three persons at the same time. Okay. Now, final point. The biggest point is this. I think if you get this wrong, you don't understand Jesus as our mediator. Okay. Here's, here's the, the, the nail that just destroys this view. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. John says... My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, like let's say in the middle of a sermon you throw water all over somebody. And, okay. If anyone does sin, uh, but if anyone does sin, we have, present tense, an advocate with the Father, who is he? Jesus Christ the righteous. We currently, presently, have an advocate, a defense attorney, with the Father. He's not the Father, he's Jesus Christ, the righteous. Right now, you have Jesus sitting at the right hand of God the Father as your advocate, as your defense attorney. When you sin, you go, Father, please forgive me. And the Son says, yeah, he's with me. I died for him. This makes no sense. The advocacy, the priesthood of Jesus as our high priest at the right hand of the Father makes no sense unless you've got two persons. And then it goes on to say this. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And the four-point and the five-point Calvinists can argue over that verse. But here, he is the propitiation for our sins. He is, not he was, he is the propitiation. What's a propitiation? It's a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. On the cross, you, you got three people we need to keep in, in mind. Us, sinners. The propitiation, Jesus, the one being punished in our place, appeasing the wrath of God. And then you need the propitiation the one who is being propitiated, I should say. You've got God needing his wrath appeased, 
and you've got the Son appeasing the wrath, all in a perfect plan. But if modalism is true, you either don't have a propitiator or a propitiatee. You need both, and Jesus is the propitiation and our advocate. So, sum it all up. For all eternity, the three persons of the Trinity lived in perfect love and harmony. They agree to a plan to save sinners who deserve wrath. One of the members takes on flesh, takes on humanity, and Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's crucified on a cross where the Father's wrath is poured out upon him in our place. The gospel call is trust in Jesus as your Savior. And you're not going to believe that until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. All three members of the Trinity working in harmony and making the gospel work and making it comprehensible.